a story of a farmer, and uh, he called up a local church. And the secretary answered, and the farmer said, I'd like to speak to the head hog at the trough. And the secretary says, who are you referring to? Is that our pastor? She says, yeah, I think so, yeah. Is the head hog in? She said, well, you can't refer to our pastor as the head hog. You can call him pastor or reverend or minister, something like that, but not the head hog. He says, okay, I'm sorry about that, but he says, I just sold a bunch of sows, and I was wanting to give $10,000 to the building fund, and I was hoping to catch him. The secretary thought about it. She says, okay, wait just a minute. I think the big pig just walked in. (laughs) Money, it changes our perspective on a lot of things, doesn't it? And when you go through the book of Proverbs, nearly every page in the book of Proverbs has some wisdom and guidance or principles or promises in relation to money. And the fact of money is this, is that it reveals who we are. Money is an indicator, a barometer of our faith in God, and it is a test of our character, of our trust and our integrity to one another. It's a vital topic. Somebody said there's more important things than money, but they usually require money, don't they? And so what I want us to do today is kind of a straightforward message about redefining how we view wealth, how we view the use of the financial resources that God has given us. What does it mean to truly be rich? And so what I I want us to do is to look at four ways that the Bible says are illegitimate or bad ways to become wealthy or to gain wealth or to gain financial resources, and then to cap it off with three ways that the Bible says the wise or the righteous person does, all right? So we'll get the bad stuff out of the way, and then we'll go to the good stuff. How about that? All right, so the book of Proverbs, we're going to be in there, and we're going to be kind of darting all over the place into several scriptures as we look at what Solomon teaches about money and about finances. The first thing I want us to see here, and it's not by way of our notes yet, is this. When it comes to the idea of finances, of financial wealth, the Bible teaches is that it's a blessing. That we, as followers of Jesus, should be good at making money. I'm not saying getting rich. I'm not saying become wealthy by the world's standards. But that we should have an excellent worth ethic. That when our employer looks at us, they should be very glad that we're at the job and we're doing the job. That when the deadline needs to be met, that they can count on us to do it. That they can look at us as followers of Jesus and they can know that we'll go the extra mile, we'll put in the extra hours to get the job done, to bless the business, to bless the company, and to bless our employer. And in the process, we receive blessing as well. The Bible has a very good view about the process of making money and handling money in that it is a blessing of God. Look at these few scriptures, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. Solomon writes this, Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. If you're diligent, if you work, if you pour in your your skills, your labor, your effort, then there is going to be a process where you will build financial resources, and this is considered a blessing. 
<clears throat> Proverbs 14.23. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Proverbs 21, verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to to poverty. So the Bible has a very positive view about gaining wealth, of making money, and the use of money. But in the process of doing it, it also warns us about four unways or bad ways that we can go about doing that. So having said that, Let me give you the first way that is unwise towards gaining wealth, towards gaining resources, and it is this, by way of your notes, it is upgrading your lifestyle through credit. Upgrading your lifestyle is the first unwise way to gain financial or to gain resources. Proverbs 22, verses 26 to 27 says this, Do not be the ones who shakes hands and pledge or puts up security for debts. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. Now notice that if you lack the means to pay. Solomon was relating to kind of an ancient form of what we would call today the credit card, where you would secure a a purchase through means of an obligation toward a debt in order to gain some type of gain or finances or some type of property. And Solomon is saying that this is unwise. When you think about the biggest temptation that we face today when it comes to finances, it is upgrading our lifestyles through that little piece of plastic we call the credit card, Visa, MasterCard, Discover Card. And what you can do is you can go out of the service today and you can take that card and you can buy yourself a whole new wardrobe. And boy, you can just impress people with a new, look at the clothes he has. Boy, look at her new shoes. Aren't those sharp? And you know, we can use that credit card to buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people, quite honestly, we don't like. And so we do that. We've got relatives, we've got family coming over in a month or, you know, in a month from now, you're thinking, oh man, I'm so dreading them coming. I just so don't like to be around them, but I want to impress them. I want to make them look, think we're doing really good. And so with that credit card, you can kind of update your whole domestic or your house furniture so that they walk in and, oh boy, you must be doing so well. We're so impressed. You can get that new toy, that new gimmick, that new gadget, and you don't have the money in order to pay for it. And folks, as of right now, according to statistics, the average household has $6,577 worth of credit card debt. And that means nationally that the credit card debt is over $830 billion making it the greatest liability or the greatest debt that we have within America. 
And so what is the biggest problem with the credit card? And don't get me wrong, I've got one, and my wife and I use it as a purchasing vehicle, but we pay it off at the end of every month. But when you go into debt and you're paying interest, what is the biggest issue? Proverbs 22, verse 7 says this, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. When you use credit, money you don't have to purchase other things, you then, rather than owning something, you become owned. How many of you, and give me a show of hands, can remember the layaway system? Anybody here? Okay, Okay, everybody 45 and older, you just raised your hands. Younger, what's a layaway system? What is that? Well, there used to be this thing. It was like at Sears and J.C. Penney's where you buy the washing machine and you pay $100, you'd lay it away. You don't take it home yet, but it's yours, that washing machine. $100, then the next month you put in another $100, and then the next month another, and then you continue laying the money away until finally you have paid for it, the amount that it costs, and you take it home, and it's shiny, and it's new, and it's exciting. You're like, oh, I've got it. But now what happens? They don't do that anymore. You purchase an item on credit card, and by the time you paid it off, you don't even know where it is. I mean, it's broke, or it's not in the shape. You don't even like the thing, and you've paid twice as much of what the original price is because you have tacked all of this interest upon it. It's maybe up in the attic somewhere under a bunch of other stuff. And rather than owning it, you become owned. Because the moment that you become in debt on consumer or commercial debt, rather than owning it, you become owned, and Visa owns a piece of you, don't they? And they're not going to be gracious and merciful. Rather than Jesus being your master, MasterCard is your master. And some of us, we want financial freedom. We want to be able to give more to the, to the things that matter for eternity. We see the kids going to camp into the summer, and we think, boy, I would love to give to that. But Visa, but MasterCard, but Discover says I can't because I am increasingly in debt to them. In fact, 75% of people who have credit card debt are three paychecks away from bankruptcy. And it's just not wise. You you go and you purchase that entertainment center. It's got all the, the TV and all the fancy gadgets and the music and whatever. And you're paying two $2,500. And you've got an 18% annual rate of interest on that. And if you just make the minimum payment by the time you're done after several years, you will have paid interest of that the interest will be $5,897. And so for a total of $8,397, and you will have paid three times the amount of what that thing originally cost. It's just not wise. So how do we fix this? How do we deal with this issue of consumer or credit card debt? Well, I'm going to give you the answer this morning. It's going to come from an unlikely source but it's Saturday Night Live. 
I want to play your notes, skit of those. Oh, I just yeah. can't get these numbers. I just can't get these numbers to add up. Like we're never gonna get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? <laughs> Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. Oh, let me see that. If you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Hmm, sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in chapter three. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. <laughs> now I'm really confused. It's a little Shocking, isn't it? If you don't have the money, you don't pay for it. Number two, the second way a fool advances financially or tries to gain financial resources is pursuing get-rich-quick schemes. Pursuing get-quick-rich schemes. Hard to say, isn't it? Okay. Get-rich-quick schemes. Proverbs 21, verse 5 says this, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. If you're diligent and you plan ahead and you work steadily, that's the way to go. But if you purchase things or do things in haste quickly in order to gain financially really quick, then that's going to be a downward slope for you. Somebody says to you, oh, I've got the inside track on this investment. Man, it's going to be so good, so sweet. You're going to want to invest in, but you need to get in it quick. Because it's going to go rapidly. Come on, hurry up. Oh, I found this internet guru on YouTube. And this guy is getting so many people rich if they will just follow him and buy into his philosophy and his products. But you've got to pay $300 just to get in so that you can start to get his resources. And then it's $30 a month. Get rich quick. The casino. Get rich quick. I saw a casino had an advertisement that it was to people who are in debt. And it showed all the struggles they were having financially. And it had told them, come to the casino so that you can strike it big so that you can get out of debt and your financial troubles. And I'm thinking, oh boy, if somebody followed that, they're a few fries short of a Happy Meal, aren't they? <laughs> the lottery. Half of Americans are playing the lottery for that one in 176 million, one in 176 million chance that they won't have to go to work the next day. Like that's really likely. Somebody has said that the lottery is a tax on people who are bad at math. And the fact is, is that you have more chances of winning the lottery <clears throat> Your chances are greater of winning the lottery 
if you will simply walk to the lottery and get struck by lightning, that's more likely to happen than winning the lottery itself. Statistics tell us that people especially are struggling financially. They're the ones who are most hit by the lottery. So people earning less than $13,000 a year are spending 9% of their income to buy lottery tickets. People who make less than $30,000 a year are admitting that they're spending 13% of their income on lottery tickets. Proverbs 13.11 says this, Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. Jeannie Fisher is a financial advisor for ARGI and who is a certified financial public board ambassador says this, if those people who put money into the lottery would simply take $250 of that money and would invest it into an average mutual index fund that returns on the average 10% a year, If they would put $250 a year, at the end of 50 years, they would have $260,000. If they took that $250 a year and they would put it into a treasury note, a 30-year treasury note, they would have $86,145. And then on the taxes that were made for that, it would be from a more sustainable source of income that could pay for public services. Proverbs 21, verse 5 says this, The plans of the diligent lead to advantage, but everyone who is hasty surely comes to poverty. And the problem with the get-rich-quick schemes is simply this. People are pressing emotionally on you for impulse buying. And you're like, if I don't do this, then I'm going to lose out. The fear that you're going to have a missed opportunity is a trap because the way that those who are followers of Jesus walk in obedience, they do so by trusting in the Lord, waiting upon God, and knowing that as they are stepping forward day by day in obedience, that God will provide for them everything that they need. And they don't need to take a shortcut to get there. The third foolish way towards financial wealth is overwork. Overwork. Proverbs 15, verse 16 says, Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. As I said before, work is great, and if you put in the extra hours, that's fine, as the job requires and things need to get done. But we have to know when it is to say enough. I've got to set limits, and I've got to go home. And as I've discipled men and I've sat across a table in conversations with them, and as they come to know their identity in Jesus Christ, part of what that does is they begin to say to their employer, their supervisor, their business, who is demanding more and more and more of them, more than they should really give, they begin to say, no, I need to go home, and I need to be with my family. The reason why we work and we work and work and work is because we think that having more money is going to bring happiness. But money doesn't bring happiness. Money is a means towards happiness. If you're on a deserted island and you've got a big pile of money, what good does that do to you? Absolutely nothing. And so we go for money because we think that it's the means to, to make us happy. 
But do you know what makes us happy? It's walking in integrity and peace with God, and it's investing in meaningful relationships with others. I have worked for years in hospice, and I've been at the bedside of so many people who are in their last chapter of their lives, and I have never once heard somebody say, and as they were reviewing their life, you know what? I wish I would have made more money. I wish that I could have made bigger purchases in my life. I wish I could have accumulated more possessions. No, more and more what they say is this. I wish I would have invested and spent time with that friendship. I wish I would have said or been or done or went to the places with my family that would have brought the memories that are so lasting and so valuable. And a lot of us guys, especially men, When we think about how we work and we think about overwork, we're like, okay, I need to work so hard because I want my family, I want my kids to have what I did not have. And there's something okay about that. But if we come to the place where we are possession rich, but relationship poor, we have missed the ultimate purpose about what's ultimately meaningful and valuable about life. And what leads to the fourth foolish way in terms of gaining wealth, and that is to profit through dishonesty. Profit through dishonesty. Proverbs 16, verse 8 says, Better a little with, the right, better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Proverbs 28, verse 6 says, Better to be poor and honest than to be dishonest and rich. That says it pretty clearly, doesn't it? If you cheat at school, you cheat on your taxes, you cheat on your timesheet, you don't disclose all the facts of a business deal and there's not honest disclosures, you sell a piece of property or your home or your car and you hide the flaws knowing that the person who is purchasing is going to have to deal with those later on down the road, you are the one who loses because you're losing your integrity before God and your character before other people. And though maybe you gain a few steps ahead financially, you're ultimately going to be the one who loses. So where does this come from? When we fall into those financial traps and those pitfalls, what is the fundamental problem? Proverbs 11:28 lays it out very clearly. It says this, Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Those who trust in their riches will fall. You fall into a financial trap because you believe that it is through your money that that's going to bring the security and the happiness into your life. You're trusting it to give you something that only God can give. And because money has taken the place of God in your life, you're following to these traps and you don't know how to wisely use your finances. Now let me go a little bit deeper here. Because when it comes to money, there's two personality types. And you want to see if, whether you fit into one of these two types. Personality type number one says money is security. 
If I have more money, if I make more money, if I save more money, then my future is more secure. I'm in control. I'm more safe. I'm ready for retirement or to pay for the college or whatever else may come down the line. And that's where my personality type is. In fact, the Lord has had to convict me a number of times of putting too much emphasis on saving money where God says, Nick, you need to give some away and then trust me with the rest. And so there's those that believe money is security, but there's a second personality type that's the opposite. They believe money is significance. They believe that through their money and the purchases, swiping up the credit card, taking out a bigger loan for nicer things, that that's going to bring significance into their lives when they get bigger and better things. But you want to know what's kind of a weird law of life? And it is this, that people who believe money is security and money is significance, this is just kind of a law of life. These two people seem to marry each other, don't they? Do you see that in your spouse? You see that in the fights that you have at home? Maybe you get that $1,000 bonus at the end of the year. And the person who believes money is security says, yeah, we need to set it aside. Who knows what our taxes are going to be next year? And so they want to save it. The other person says, hey, we've worked hard. Let's take a trip. Let's kind of upgrade our house or whatever. And the fight goes on. And one person says, you're stingy. The other person says, oh, you're just burning through cash. And the problem of these fights happen is because this couple has not become before the Lord and saying, God, rather than looking to the money, we're going to look toward you. And they pray, and they say, God, what do you want us to do? And then out of prayer and seeking God's word, they have an open conversation with each other, coming to a place of discernment. So those are the, three neg- those are the four negative ways towards building wealth. Let's get to three positive ways. How about we move this in a positive direction? Is that okay? Number one is this, redefine wealth, redefine wealth. Solomon writes, chapter 15, verse 17 of Proverbs, better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. Chapter 17, verse 1, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Redefine wealth, it's not what you have externally, it's about the contentment that you possess internally. And you can have a ton of stuff outside of you, but if it's causing stress and conflict within you, then folks, you're not very wealthy. Somebody said this, when it comes to money, it can buy a house, but it can't buy a home. It can buy you a bed, but it cannot buy you sleep. It can buy you a clock, but it cannot buy you time. It can buy you a book, but it cannot buy you knowledge. It can buy you a position, but not respect. It can buy you medicine, but it cannot buy you health. It can buy you blood, but it cannot buy you life. So we need to rethink money about what ultimately it's going to help us to gain in terms of what's ultimately important. Number two, live within your means. Live within your means. Rather than trying to acquire more, how about you pursue the path of commitment and say, God, with what you have given me today, 
I will be thankful and I'll be grateful for that. Lord, with what you have provided for my life, I will choose to be content. And so you take your hobbies, you enjoy those, your family, you enjoy those, your ministry, and you enjoy that. Contentment says, I will be satisfied with what God has given me today. And contentment does not come through fulfilling your desires or denying your desires, but rather surrendering them to the Lord and saying, God, with what you have given me, I will be grateful. And that is enough until you give me more. Number three, live with radical generosity. Live with radical generosity. Proverbs chapter three, verses nine and 10 says this, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brown over with new wine. What does it mean to honor God with the first fruits of your wealth? Biblically, that means the tithe. Is that the first part, 10% goes to God at the very least. That is the minimum standard of generosity. For Brenda and I, the principle that we have lived with throughout all of our marriage or pretty early on is that the first 10% at the very least goes to God. And if you give that to God, God says, I will take care of the rest and God will do more with the 90% that's left over than you will do with the 100% by yourself. And so we give the first 10% to God. The next 10% we save, we put aside, we pay ourselves first. And then we learn to live off of the 80%. Now some of you say, well, how can I do that financially? It just doesn't make sense. Do you want to know what I've seen over and over? The people who have begun to tithe, they will take that 10% and they will give it to the ministries of God They will see God just step up and that God will increase their resources. He'll make the resources that they have last longer. He'll give them greater wisdom with the resources they currently have that when they put God first, then he's going to provide all the rest. I've sometimes seen couples who begin to give and with the amount that they start to give, they have said, we've received a pay raise or we've received financial resources or we've received this come into our lives as we've started to give to the Lord first and they have seen his hand in operation. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. Someone says, one person gives freely yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper, but whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. People who curse the one who hoards grain, but they pray God's blessing on the one who is willing to sell. Proverbs 19, verse 17 reads, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. And he will reward them for what they have done. Do you catch that? That when you give to God and when you give to people who are in need, God says it's like you've given God a loan. And God says, I'm going to owe you. I'm going to bless you because God loves people so much that when you give, you become like God. And God says, when you are loving people that I love, 
I am in debt to you and I am going to bless you and pay you back beyond what you could imagine. And God says, do this because that's what I'm like. And folks, when it comes to giving, the reason that we mostly give is because it blesses us. When we give to others, we are the ones who gain the biggest benefit. Do you remember Jesus? He's feeding the 5,000. And they're hungry. They haven't eaten for three days. They love to be around Jesus, but Jesus wants to feed them. And there's this boy. He's got five loaves and two fish. And he gives it to Jesus. And I have to say, why did that boy have to give that five loaves and two fish to Jesus? Did Jesus need that? The little boy could have given him two loaves and one fish. It would have been the same difference. But Jesus didn't need that, did he? Jesus could have snapped his fingers and all of the hunger pains of all the crowd could have gone away. He didn't need any of our resources, but rather he took that boy's small fish and small loaves and he multiplied it. And right there in that crowd of 5,000, with that Levite Lunchable and the Hebrew Hot Pockets or the equivalent thereof, they have this massive tailgate party. And everybody's blessed and everybody's in fellowship. And guess who's the most blessed that afternoon? It's that little boy. Because of what he gave, Jesus multiplied it. And folks, when you and I give, what is the result? You and I receive the biggest blessing, don't we? Well, I want to invite our worship team and ministry prayer team to come forward this morning. And I want to invite us to stand. And if you need prayer this morning, our ministry prayer team will be here for you to the left of our sanctuary to pray about any concern, any need you might have. Study after study shows that those who are generous on average live longer. Study after study shows that those who are generous have greater happiness in their lives. Study after study shows that those who are generous and serve, they have incredible resources to fight depression and they're less depressed. Study after study shows that those who are generous have a greater resistance to all kinds of problems than those who are self-absorbed and those who are not. You might be here this morning and saying, okay, another pastor talking about money. There's a story of a skeptic, and he went to a pastor. They were in conversation. He says, I'm tired of this Christianity business. Because all I ever hear about Christianity is give, give, give. And the pastor said in response, well, that's about the best description of Christianity I've ever heard. Give, give, give. And as we worship this morning, may we just open our hands to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to give and to give and to give. Because that's what Jesus did to me.